I know, I know, I know. I say it all the time. But I say it all the time because it's true. I love our podcast community. I mean, not only can we educate ourselves and get to review current evidence-based facts, we can also encourage each other when we get complicated dilemmas. We can walk with each other to try to do the best that we can for our patients. This podcast topic idea comes from Jerry, an OBGYN resident in Virginia. Jerry writes, quote, I wanted to know if you could do a topic on the dermatoses of pregnancy. My program has had some interesting cases recently, and most of what I could find wasn't up to date. I couldn't find a specific practice bulletin or committee opinion on the topic, so I wanted to reach out, end quote. Honestly, I hadn't even thought of this topic, and it's a good one, and he's right. There really isn't a good practice bulletin or committee opinion specifically dealing with this issue in pregnancy. There's plenty on vulvar skin diseases and skin diseases in general, but not really on pregnancy-specific dermatoses. So Jerry, it's a great idea. We do see patients with these complaints very frequently. Some are just bothersome and annoying, and some have some real adverse issues. So in this episode, we're going to not just scratch the surface. See what I did there? That's my dad joke. Scratch the surface. (laughs) Oh, that was terrible. We're not just going to scratch the surface on this topic, but we really are going to go deep into these conditions, their presentations, their workup, and their therapies. Is herpes gestationalis really related to herpes? And can pruritic papules and plaques on the abdomen have bullae, which are linked to adverse maternal neonatal outcomes and which are not? And lastly, what is the condition known as the triple P and why is it so bad? Well, stay tuned and find out. Now, we're actually going to do this in two parts because there's a lot of info here. So this is part one of our dermatoses in pregnancy. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So this term, dermatosis of pregnancy, actually refers to a whole group of skin diseases that are found predominantly during gestation or immediately postpartum. Now, before we go into specifics, it's important to remember that skin conditions in pregnancy fall into two main boxes, all right? So whenever you see somebody, oh, I've got this weird rash, there's these lesions on my abdomen, um, remember to first think about it in two main boxes, pregnancy-specific or non-pregnancy specific. So that's the first division in your diagnostic mind algorithm, right? Is this something related just to pregnancy or can this happen outside of pregnancy, but it's just kind of happening for the first time during this gestation, okay? Pregnancy specific or non-pregnancy specific. Once you place the patient into one of those two categories, then the next subdivision is broken down into those with a rash or those without a rash. 
All right. So already two parts into our decision tree. Oh, Dr. Chapa, I've got a weird rash. No problem. Pregnancy specific or nonspecific with or without a rash. I guess to be fair, we have to balance out the seesaw, right? On one hand, we have pregnancy specific stuff. And on the other hand, the other side of the seesaw, we have the non-pregnancy associated or related stuff. That's stuff that can happen to anybody, even during pregnancy, like chronic urticaria or drug eruptions, insect bites or psoriasis. Now, there's one specific kind of psoriasis that is problematic in pregnancy. And we're going to talk about that in part two. That's actually part of the triple P, all right? There's a specific kind of psoriasis that is actually really bad. And we're going to get to that, not in this episode, but in part two. All right, fine. Now let's get on to some specific pregnancy-related skin conditions, starting off with a pretty rare one because those are the ones that can take us off guard. So let's cover pemphigoid gestationalis first. Pemphigoid gestationis, or PG for short. This was once called herpes gestationis. Now remember, this has nothing to do with herpes virus. That synonym was used to refer to this grouped nature of blisters that looked herpetiform because they were blister-like. But remember, this has nothing to do with herpes. So here's an important point. Please avoid that term, herpes gestationis, because that word, herpes, is completely misleading to patients and to misinformed healthcare workers who think that this is something infectious or some kind of result of an STI. Plus, avoiding the term herpes avoids the potential inappropriate use of medications for herpes virus. So stick with pemphigoid gestationis. But if somebody ever asks you, hey, did you ever learn about herpes gestationis? Then you go, uh, yeah, you mean PG, pemphigoid gestationis? Because that term is jacked. So don't use herpes gestationis. Yes, this is not like eczema in pregnancy. That's super common. This is rare. But remember, it's that rare stuff that can sneak up behind you and bite you in places that we don't want to be bitten. So <laughs> that's why we're covering this. So PG, based on who you read, has a prevalence of anywhere from about 1 in 50,000 to a 1 in 40,000. All right, the point is it's not very common. But this is why we're covering this because you've got to get this diagnosis correct. In most cases, PG develops during a first pregnancy. Often it presents in the second or third trimester, and it can occur for the first time in the postpartum interval. That happens around 25% of the time. This is associated with an extremely itchy, extremely pruritic, urticarial lesion that can begin on the abdomen and the trunk. Now, this commonly involves the belly button area, the umbilicus. So that's a big clinical pearl. Red itchy, urticarial-like blotches on the abdomen that includes the belly button, think PG, because we're going to get into pubs in a little bit, and that completely spares the umbilicus. I mean, it's like a shield, like a dome around the umbilicus that's just not affected at all. So PG and belly button. These urticarial plaques can then very quickly progress to widespread bullous lesions that can affect the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. There's often a flare at the time of delivery with resolution in the postpartum interval. But just remember, this itching can be severe. So a couple of clinical pearls here that we've got to pull out. These are pruritic. These are urticarial. These are plaques. That sounds like pubs, right? But the catch is this one involves the umbilical area 
And this has bullous lesions. I mean, remember that herpetic form? So it, it has these little tight little water blisters, and it can even affect the palms of the hands and soles of the feet. So itchy, belly button, looks like pugs, but with bullous lesions that can also affect the hands and soles of the feet. As for why this happens, Williams Obstetrics tells us that it's a result of a primary reaction between the maternal immunoglobulin G antibodies, that's the IgG antibodies, that are directed against collagen found in the basement membrane of the skin, as well as the amnion epithelium. All right, guys, so this isn't just about the skin. This has some adverse perinatal outcomes. Remember we said you got to get this diagnosis right. This is considered an autoimmune issue, and these antibodies, these IgGs don't just affect the collagen of the skin, but remember, they affect the amniotic epithelium as well. Autoantibody binding to collagen, either in the amnion or the skin, activates complement to promote eosinophil chemostasis to the antigen antibody complexes on the basement membrane or wherever they form. So the chain of reaction is IgG hits the collagen, collagen that's either in the skin basement membrane or the amniotic epithelium, then that triggers complement. Complement then triggers eosinophil activation. Man, there's a lot going on here. This eosinophilic degranulation damages the dermal-epidermal junction with blister formation. And as a little side note, this isn't just related to pregnancies with a fetus. This can actually happen with gestational trophoblastic disease. So if a patient that you're following up for a complete mole or GTD or of some sort, then develops this weird abdominal rash with blisters, think of this condition. Think PG because it's not just related to the presence of a fetus. Skin biopsy is big here. Clinical diagnosis is not enough because this diagnosis must be correct and the gold standard still uses histopathology. Definitive diagnosis is based on a biopsy of a lesion that will show skin-direct immunofluorescent staining of, here it is, linear deposition of IgG and C3 complement along the basement membrane. That sounds like a textbook answer, but that's really what you tell the lab to look for. So when you biopsy it, you're sending it to two places. Make sure that they're looking for traditional histopathology. Just look at the tissue, but then you've got to send it. Make sure that you call the lab and tell them, I want immunofluorescent staining for this. Look for IgG and C3, and you'll see these linear depositions along the basement membrane. If your lab, for whatever reason, doesn't do immunofluorescence, then make sure that you send it to somebody who does because those linear depositions of IgG and C3 are pathognomonic for PG. Now, on traditional pathology evaluation of the biopsy, the skin has this spongiotic epidermis with marked papillary dermal edema and an eosinophilic infiltrate. Now, here's a big clinical pearl. There is an association between PG and Graves' disease. Weird. Remember, it's all autoimmune stuff. So if you have a patient with PG, that's an independent indication to check thyroid function tests. Man, do you see how stuff brings friends? I mean, you're looking at the skin, you're like, ooh, that's kind of weird. Uh, you got little blisters, your belly button's all red. Uh, all right, I mean, don't just put steroids on it. You've got to get this diagnosis right. Do you see that? Because you could potentially miss untreated hyperthyroidism with Graves, and we haven't even gotten into the associated fetal issues, which there's some. But we're going to get into that in just a minute. Before we do, though, let's talk about management. Early on in its course, topical high-potency corticosteroids and oral antihistamines like Benadryl can be effective. 
Oral prednisone at a dose of 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilo can be taken daily and then gradually tapered to a maintenance dose if needed. But remember, topical is always best as first line. But in those that are recalcitrant to these medications, then you can try oral prednisone in the doses just given. Rarely, plasmapheresis or high-dose intravenous immunoglobulin therapy can be used, and it has been reported with good success rates, but obviously that's much more invasive and much more complicated. And there are real fetal issues here. Uh, by the way, you hear how I said fetal? Because I just said this before and we had to edit it out. Uh, I said fiddle. Like, like you're playing a fiddle? I don't know, man. I'm telling you, when I don't have caffeine, I really feel... Oh my God, I messed that up too. I really felt it, feel it. Man, English is hard. My goodness. Okay, let's get on to this. Back to the fetal issues. Ugh. Okay, given the increased risk of small for gestational age infants and preterm birth, it's recommended to monitor growth with ultrasound after the diagnosis of PG. See, got to get this diagnosis right. There may also be a component of uteroplacental insufficiency, which raises the risk of fetal death. So because of that, it's not just about tracking ultrasound rate of growth, but this also is an indication for antepartum fetal surveillance. So do that at time of diagnosis until delivery. In 2016, in the Journal of Reproductive Immunology, Al-Saif et al. published their retrospective review of pemphigoid gestationists in 32 Saudi patients, and the outcomes were pretty striking. This retrospective review really had some interesting findings. First of all, of the 32 patients, only two were primogravidas. 84% of the cases had the onset of PG between the second and the third trimesters, and 100% of the patients complained of itching, and 94% reported this as their first main symptom. Of these 32 patients, 50%, that's 5-0, ended up having recurrent symptoms in their immediate next pregnancy. 75% of the patients had a good response to oral corticosteroids, and only one patient needed IV IG. Here's what's interesting regarding the neonatal outcomes. The authors state, quote, In 53% of the patients, maternal and fetal outcomes were good with no complications, end quote. I don't know if what they're trying to imply is, hey, 50%, no issues, wahoo, like that's a good thing, or holy moly, 50% had issues. I take that as, man, 50% had issues? Guys, that's really high. I mean, one out of two had something. So again, just to take home, this is a real problem. Remember, this has real inherent side effects for the child. Now, I mean, side effects as in side effect. I mean, comorbidities. Here's what they found in those 32 patients. Six pregnancies. Remember, we're just talking about an end of 32. Six of the 32 were complicated by preterm labor. Two of the 32 had FGR, and two had stillbirth. Guys, those are terrible numbers, all to drive home the fact that PG is not just a dermatosis, it's a real obstetrical complication. This can be considered a medically indicated late preterm, early term delivery. So if you do get her to delivery, she's not out of the woods yet, nor is the baby. There are risks to the fetus that include being born with lesions that are transient because of that IgG antibody transfer. Williams says that this can occur in up to 10% of cases. So patients need to know, look, 90% sure this won't happen, but 10% of the time the baby can actually be born with these skin lesions. They're temporary, but it is a real thing. 
Remember, because of the risk of SGA, preterm birth, and even fetal death, this can be considered a medical indication for late preterm, early term delivery. Slowly following delivery, maternal lesions resolve without scarring, and most women are disease-free after anywhere from four to six months. Yeah, not weeks, months. And PG has important gynecological implications as well. The skin disease may be exacerbated during menses or by later oral contraceptives, so patients should be made aware of that. Before we leave PG as one of our topics of interest, I do want to provide you with one more literature reference. This is out of 2020 from November from Frontiers in Medicine, and it's a systematic review article on this very subject. The title is, obviously, A Systematic Review of Treatment Outcomes and Clinical Outcomes in Pemphigoid Gestationists. But this review highlights one of the issues with following up and reporting something that's really rare. Quote, In total, 109 articles, including 140 PG patients, were analyzed. So let's stop there. We're not talking about thousands of patients. I mean, in this review that stretched from 1970, okay, 1970, to March of 2020, they ended up with 109 articles and an N of 140. I mean, that's just one of the issues here. But we'll take whatever information we can get as the authors of this 2020 publication state. Quote, no randomized controlled trials or robust observational studies detailing PG treatment were found. But what they did come up with is that systemic corticosteroids with or without topical corticosteroids and antihistamines were the most frequently prescribed treatment modality in about 54% of the cases. And thankfully, about 83% actually had good response. It had decreased symptomatology, but it's unknown if the decrease in skin symptoms and signs translates to improved neonatal outcome because like ICP, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, you can make them feel better, but it doesn't take away the the true pathophysiology, the root of the problem, all right? So the roots underground, that's still there being problematic. You're just kind of trimming the leaves up with what you can see. Once again, those are my analogies uh, and hope that makes sense. But it just underscores the issue here that when you have something that's rare, you kind of have to take whatever information you can get. But anyway, Frontiers in Medicine 2020, a systematic review of treatment outcomes uh, and treatment options in pemphigoid gestationalis. Pretty good review. Remember, podcast family, that this is going to be a two-parter, all right? This is part one, and we're not done yet, because I still want to cover something that can look like PG, at least initially, before bullet formation. So we're going to cover pubs next. That's P-U-P-P-P-S, all right? We're going to cover pubs next, and there's a lot of info there as well. And then we're going to call it a day. We're going to leave the other pregnancy-related dermatoses for part two, and then we're going to cover a really rare and dangerous condition called a triple P, right? That's pustular psoriasis of pregnancy. But I don't want to get into that this episode because that's deep and it needs its own time. So let's come back and cover pubs before we wrap up this episode. Puritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy. Yeah, that's a mouthful, and that's why people say pubs for short. That's P-U-P-P-P, okay? P-U-P-P-P. So there's four P's in there. It's like HIPAA. Sometimes I spell HIPAA with two P's and one A, or sometimes I spell it with two A's, but we got to get it right. So it's puritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy. 
This has an unknown cause, but it is not an autoimmune dermatosis. So that's the good news. This is also known as the polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, but it is definitely more well known as PUBS. PUBS usually appears late in pregnancy, but about 15% can actually begin postpartum. The rash affects the abdomen and the proximal thigh in about 97 to 98% of women. So remember, it's not just the abdomen, it can also be on the proximal thigh. Lesions initially form within the stretch marks, within striae, but they show periumbilical sparing. I mean, it's like a big dome is put over the belly button and there's nothing around there. It's pretty remarkable. Rarely, again, rarely, the face, palms, and soles of the feet may be involved, but that's not typical. Pubs is more frequently seen in Caucasian and nulliparous women, those with multifetal gestation, and here's a weird clinical pearl, those carrying a male fetus. Wow, what's that about? Well, who knows, but it's a true thing, so remember pubs and the male fetus if you're ever trying to stump the professor. Primaparous women in the third trimester are the ones typically affected, and it seldom recurs in subsequent pregnancies. As to the pathophysiology, well, we know it's not autoimmune, and the real exact mechanism isn't really known, but it's thought that the abdominal distension causes damage to the connective tissue at the basement membrane, and that triggers just a general inflammatory response. This is a purely clinical diagnosis with no lab findings and no indication for biopsies. But if a biopsy is performed, it'll often show a nonspecific perivascular lymphohistocytic infiltrate with or without eosinophils. There's also no known risks to the fetus. According to Williams Obstetrics, the itchy rash will usually respond to treatment with oral antihistamines or skin emollients or topical corticosteroids, but a small number of women will need systemic corticosteroids to help relieve the itching. Pubs usually resolves within several days following delivery, and it leaves no scarring behind. In 15 to 20% of women, however, symptoms can persist for two to four weeks postpartum. Podcast family, remember we stated that there were four pregnancy-specific dermatoses? Well, we have just covered two of them. To prevent confusion, we'll let that simmer around in your brain for now, and then we'll tackle the last two, atopic eruptions of pregnancy, which is a catch-all term for those three conditions that we already mentioned, and intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. And we still need to throw in a freebie, because we're going to cover what some would consider to be the fifth pregnancy-specific dermatoses, but that's controversial. This is a rare and a bizarre skin condition called the triple P, and it's got some real issues. But we're going to leave that for next time for part two. All right, Jerry, I hope you found that helpful. We're not done yet, so hang out for a while. Well, first, we've got to record it, but we still got part two coming up. (laughs) We're going to cover the last two conditions and, of course, that triple P that we just talked about. It's coming up. So thank you for this podcast suggestion. And for everybody else, of course, we're thankful for you. And we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.